We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we see blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Okay, so we're continuing along in our exploration of Surah Ali Imran and are now getting into this dua. Let's put some translations here. Tech problems which have now been resolved. Okay. So once again, Nod, let me know you can see the Quran on your screen. Okay, very good. So if we scroll down now to Aya eight. We have a dua. Rabbana la tuzir ulubana bada id hadaytana. And then I love my pen. Here it is. Okay. So, our Lord, do not let our hearts deviate. And here's that word again. Okay. Do not let our hearts deviate after you have guided us. Grant us your mercy. And so, you are the one who is ever giving. And then, Rabbana innaka jami'un nas. So, you know, our Lord, indeed, 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 you will be gathering uh, uh, all of humanity uh, for this day of which there is no doubt. We've seen before in terms of Allah speaking about the Quran in the beginning of the, surah, of the previous surah. And then, uh, so indeed, 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 Allah, he does not part from his promise or the promise. Yeah. So simple straightforward dua, which is a good dua to, to get to know if you don't know it already. And so just taking it very piece by piece, this is this is more of a simple straightforward uh, uh, portion of the discussion. And um, can you all hear me? Because I'm having Zoom issues here. Okay, good. Okay, I'm still having Zoom issues. Well, keep talking. Now I've lost all of you. Or if someone speaks, can you, can, I just want to see if I can hear you. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Good. Okay, uh, I'm actually going to leave the class and I'm going to come back because I'm having Zoom problems. So hold on for a moment. Or wait, you can all still hear me? Yes, your okay. video is frozen. Okay, but as long as you can hear my, my wonderful voice, inshallah, mashallah, uh, it's frozen on is, is a handsome face. Okay, so hopefully the Zoom will catch up. So, so, oh, now it should be working. Is it working? No, yes. Video is still frozen. You know, I'm actually, okay, but you can hear me, my voice. That's yeah. correct. So, so the dua here is, is very simple and straightforward. Now, a way to think about this is that in the beginning, or uh, in Al-Fatiha, we are praying to Allah, Allah, please guide us on the straight. Now we're praying, okay, do not let us part after you have guided us. 
So in some ways, this is almost like a sequel to the prayer of Al-Fatiha. That if we think of the whole structure, we have Al-Fatiha guide us, and then Al-Baqarah begins by saying, this is guidance. We have Taqwa, and we go through the whole of that surah, and then into here. And so now we're praying, do not let us part from guidance. So this is a prayer to remain on guidance, whereas Al-Fatiha is at its simplest form a prayer to get onto guidance. Okay. Asking for Allah to grant us his mercy. So those who so if you think back to when we discussed Al-Fatiha itself and guide us to, to be on the path of those whom you have favored. What are we essentially asking? Guide us to be able to see our life as favors. And so here, by asking Allah for his rahmah, one of the rahmas is that for any time we make mistakes, don't let us fall off of the path. But then again further, guide us to appreciate this relationship we have with you as a relationship that you are giving us rahmah. That is to appreciate the rahmah that you have been giving us. And then you are wahab, you are the one who is exceedingly generous. So again, a very for our purposes, a very, very simple, straightforward dua. And then when we look at the next line, that Allah, you are going to be gathering everyone on the day of judgment, the day of which there is no doubt, and you don't break your promise. So again, think of this as sort of completing uh, what began with the dua of Al-Fatiha. But now the real question for today is when we look at Ayah's uh, one through nine. Let's try to make sense of how they fit together. So, so ayah one, we have Alif Lamim. Ayah two, we have Allah, there is no God but him, the living, the eternal, or the independent. And then he step-by-step step sends down this kitab to you confirming what he has sent down uh, in the Torah and the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, so the Injil, before, and he sent down the Furqan, but those who reject the ayahs we give, for them is, is a horrendous torment, a horrendous punishment, and Allah is majestic, and he has the ability for retribution. And nothing is hidden from Allah, in the skies and the earth. And then we have the eyes that we discussed most recently. He's the one who shapes you in the wombs the way he likes. There's no God but him. He is the Aziz, he is the Hakim. And then we had the ayah that we discussed for the last few days, okay. leading to these duas. So try to make sense of how these ayahs do or may fit together. And I have to play with this for a second to see if I can see all of you. 
close this to get to work. Sorry, once again, technical difficulties. Uh, can someone speak? Let me know. You can still hear me. Yep. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, I can hear you. Yeah, sure. All right. So, so we'll have to work with with uh, the frozen situation until it unfreezes. But uh, any guesses? How do these eyes all fit together? So um, it seems like everything. So let's start with that which is most general. What is consistently spoken about in, in the ayahs? That's a really easy question. Allah? Yeah. I mean, consistently, we're from start to finish, we're speaking about Allah Ta'ala, right? God most high. In contrast, to, to the previous surah, surah two, where first uh, after Alif Lamim, we go speaking immediately about the book and the people of Taqwa. Here we're speaking about Allah from uh, from the entirety, uh, from start all the way until and including the dua. And then now having said that, what is being emphasized about Allah as we go through? Might say his knowledge. So I would include his knowledge. What else? His power. I think it's more a focus on his power and his freedom to do as he wills. And especially as indicated in Ayah 6, the Ayah that he shapes us in the womb as he wills, right? Whatever way he likes. And so Ayah 2, there's no God but him. He is living and he is independent of all of us. And then he's revealed the books. There's no indication of any obligation that he has to give us these books. Yeah. And, but he's given these books to us as guidance. And then those who reject what he is giving, okay, they're doomed. And then five related to Late's point, nothing on the earth is, is hidden from his knowledge. And then he shapes us and he sends down these different types of ayahs and such, and then we are praying to him. But yeah, I would say essentially what is common among all these attributes, specifically in what we're speaking about Allah here, is that he has all power and all freedom to exercise his power as he wills. And he has all knowledge and then as a mercy, as a gift, he has given us revelation. But it is also that we can misuse the revelation. As we discuss about people with perversity in their hearts. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a good assessment. Now, this becomes especially relevant when we talk about Islamic law versus Islamic spirituality. So Islamic law in terms of Sunday school Islam, we often imagine Islamic law to be something that is very, very strict. And then we often speak of Islamic spirituality as something that is very, very, very uh, loose and very flexible. Uh, but it tends to be the opposite. 
that Islamic law tends to be in practice very flexible. Of course, it depends upon who, to whom you're going uh, for, for answers to questions and such. But in terms of its construction, we have you know, what the text says, and then we negotiate that with what seem to be the higher aims of the text, the spirit of the law, and then we negotiate that with what do people do on the ground. So think of any issues, social relations, uh, 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 you know, financial matters and such. And so, so more often than not, Islamic law is very flexible. And in fact, in terms of the theory of, of, of a jurist, meaning a faqi or a mufti that you're going to, you, there's two common schools. One common school is just to give you an answer. Is this okay or is this not? The other school, which is sort of the Azhari school, is that it's the obligation of the jurist to figure out how can we justify what you're seeking to do. That's the obligation of the jurist in the process of trying to find you ease. It is the obligation of the jurist to figure out how to let you accomplish what you're seeking to accomplish. Good. Spirituality is a little bit different. It's spirituality at one level is, is the embrace of everyone as a student, but the process of growth as less, less flexibility. And again, let me, let me clarify what I mean. That there is not as much room for diverging beliefs. Now, in terms of the training of spirituality, that comes down to, to the relationship with the teacher and such. And I mentioned yesterday an example, a common example that's used today is Kushedi's book called Risala, where you, know, you might have 40 different doors that you look through to find out how to get the motivation to get closer to Allah. And then you have another 40 different paths to choose and how to develop a relationship with Allah. But very often people take the approach that, oh, I like the way the Sufis because they're all inclusive and such. That is true for uh, the, the Sufis that tend to be not orthodox. But again, I'm not saying that they're wrong. There are those uh, Sufi schools that formed in pushback against the strict Islamic legal schools of saying that we welcome everybody in. But in any case, what are we saying here that one of the first principles to gain if we look at Al-Baqarah sort of as a loose book of Islamic law and if we look at Ali Imran as a loose book of Islamic spirituality, we're saying one of the first principles to accept is that Allah is free to do as he wills. And then what he does for me is a gift that I have the power to squander. But I also have the gift of dua to seek redemption. Okay. Um, Umar Bhai? Yes, sir. Uh, a couple quick things. Can you see hand raises? Because Late's had no. his uh, hand raised for a little while. And can you see the chat? Uh, I can see neither. And I'm in the task manager. Let me do an experiment. I might be knocking myself out of this, but let me see if I can close one thing here. Sorry, Leith, I didn't mean to, to put you off. 
We can see you, but you're on mute. All right, can you all see me and hear me now? Okay, and I'm moving and everything. Okay, so so hopefully you all got those those points that I was making. And uh, and so I've missed whatever was in the chat box. So uh, I think, uh, Austin, you're saying late, you had your hand up or raised up for a while? Uh, yes, I did, but I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna wait till the end of class to ask okay. this. Okay, inshallah. All right, uh, other people who have questions, I'm sorry about that. Sorry for the technical problems. If not, we can continue along. So I don't know if people are typing or something. Uh, if, uh, if there is something in the chat box, uh, awesome or someone just let me know in the event that I'm having technical problems and I don't realize it. Uh, yeah, someone, someone had asked questions and said they started talking to ask a question, but you cut her off. <laughs> Didn't even know I was doing that. Okay. Okay. Oh, I had the same problem. I started talking to an answer, uh, but he cut me off. I'm assuming he didn't hear me. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, sadly, I didn't even hear you. Okay. Okay. So once again, apologies on these. On these. So then. So we're now beginning a small, another small subsection of the surah. And, and so now we're basically going to be spending some time talking about the dunya and about kafirs in the dunya. So ayah 10. Okay, so once again, let me know if you can see the, the Quran screen. Yeah, okay, very good. So in the kafaru. So so uh, regarding the people who have rejected, So so their their uh, wealth and their children will not uh, uh, what's the word will not um, enrich them uh, with Allah in the in the slightest. Okay, so simple, straightforward translation, neither the possessions nor the children will be of any use uh, for the disbelievers against God. They will be fuel for fire. So these ayahs we've already seen many, many times. And I think we've already defined the different, the, the, the types of kufr, right? That a kafir is not automatically, or a non-Muslim is not automatically a kafir. And so having said that, at one level, this ayah I think is straightforward. We're already familiar with passages like this. But what can we take from the reference to wealth and children? This is a pairing that we find over and over again throughout the Quran. What would you say would be common between these two? Yeah, awesome. Um, isn't isn't wasn't there like a commentary about how wealth and children were the two most important things in pre-Islamic Arabia? And so it, it's a it's a commentary on like nothing you gain in this world is gonna gonna uh, help you if if you don't accept. Islam. So yeah. So as far as you know, it not accepting uh, you know, nothing you gain is going to help you uh, if you don't accept Islam. That part, um, yeah. 
but yeah, what is common here of wealth and children is that when it comes down to it, these seem to be the ultimate uh, symbols of status, right? These seem to be the ultimate symbols of power, the ultimate symbols of ability, that you have wealth and that you have children. And think about what's included in what it means to have children. This also includes, because we're speaking to a patriarchal audience, this includes virility, badliness, yeah. the ability to have many, many children. And so it's the ability itself to have many children as well as the ability to provide for many children. And then the disbelievers will be fuel for the fire. Okay, that, uh, so this again, for our purposes is pretty straightforward that here you have the people that are seeking to be the masters of the dunya and the end result is that they're going to be what is commonly fuel for fire. What is commonly fuel for fire in, in villages and such? Dung. Yeah, feces. So we're basically saying you who are seeking to be masters of your domain, uh, your destiny is to be the feces of the hereafter. So it's a sharp, sharp uh, uh, insult. And then we have the example of the Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh, we have the people of the Pharaoh, Ali Fir'aun, yeah. and the people who, who came even before them. They regarded our, our uh, ayahs as lies, ayatina. and so Allah took them yeah, and for their sins. So Allah basically punished them for their sins, and Allah is severe in punishing. Again, this, for our purposes, in terms of most of what we already know, we're taught this is this is going to be more repetitious. But look at it from the perspective of the people who are the most esteemed in the world are not necessarily going to be the most esteemed in the Akhira. Yeah. Again, this ayah, uh, this previous ayah, I think, um, by calling them fuel for the fire. Uh, uh, I think it really lays low. Now, of course, we already made the point that we should not be condescending towards people that are non-Muslim. We should be cautious against co being condescending even to kafirs. Why? Because there may be awliya of Allah among them. But the wilaya, the friendship of Allah, has not yet been exposed even in their own hearts. And the easiest example is the person that I was named after. So, so the point here is the highest of this world. Uh, again, uh, what is the end result of this world? This end the end result of this world is no matter what I develop in this world is fundamentally sandcastles. I'll be washed away. So from there, we are then told to say to the coffers, you are going to be defeated. You're going to be conquered, vanquished. And then you will be driven into hell. What a horrible resting place. So how does this contrast with the point that I made two seconds ago that we should not be condescending to coffers 
And yet there are places in the Quran where we have prescriptions on how to speak to kafirs. The easiest example is Surah Lahab, right? Perish the hands of Abu Lahab. And then here we have this. We all think. So this is what we would call war talk. Abu Lahab is the, the time-bound structure, okay. right? And this, uh, and you know, this uh, Surah Bakra is giving you the general rule for how to interact and how to speak and how to do it. And the second part is that, you know, the Nazm of the Quran, that, you know, the this is, we are starting from the Surah Bakra, which can cohesively give us in the high level, all these three categories of the Muslim, non-Muslim hypocrite, then giving us all the prescription and subscription for uh, for how to deal with them in, in a phase one level, I would say. Um, and that Tabbat Yada, I always read at a very specific time-bound surah mm -hmm. for that, you know, that's what I, I think. Okay, okay. But then uh, what about this ayah here? I mean, this eye is literally saying, say to the coffers, say toes to those who have rejected. So it's not even specifying say to the Quraysh or anything like that. But the point I was making is that there will be times where you are actually in confrontation with coffers. Right? We said that, okay, what is kufr? Kufr is when someone feels compelled to turn to Allah and then they reject that compulsion. That's a condition of the heart we will not see in someone's heart. Okay but certain actions can make someone be effectively a kafir. And that is they're attacking, if they're attacking you, if they're attacking believers because they believe in Allah. Then we could say potentially those people are by definition kafirs. And that'd be the equivalent of the modern Islamophobe. And, and so the modern Islamophobe fundamentally is attacking us on our beliefs even though their intention might be self uh, um, to raise themselves by selling books or to, to get all kinds of attention and such. I mean, that was also the case of the coffers at the time of, of uh, the prophet, peace be upon him. But there will be times in which you will be in confrontation with coffers. And this is assuming that the route of gentleness did not work. <clears throat> And so, yeah, so I, isn't that, isn't this the whole theme of the Quran that, you know, the firm and polite? Keep going. So that does not mean that, you know, we can give up our religion because somebody's attacking on it or some, we unable to provide, you know, provide in a timely manner any counter argument. I think is that, you know, we can just firmly, you know, convey our message and then we firm, you know, then we can have a belief you just had yesterday class, right? This one or the other one. Mm -hmm. that the belief is is the core of it so the foundation is a belief and then you know we can just firm but polite we can just address the issues yeah but this is not firm like but, this is not firm but polite this is saying you're all going to be defeated and you're going to be going to hell right this is this is about direct as we can be yeah Hopefully we can tell them go to hell that's what it says here <laughs> that's literally what it's saying here so, so what is my point here in emphasizing this? Yeah, yeah. So my point in emphasizing this 
is sometimes we get too soft, we get too polite, right? There are those among us who get too aggressive. You know, those are the ones who regard every non-Muslim as a kafir, but then there are those who tend to follow in the other school. You know, there's, there's a, a funny meme that says, you know, yeah, al-Masiyya Dajjal, it says kafir on his head, but we don't know what it's in his heart. I'll appreciate that joke. One person's keeping a smile. Maybe somebody will give me a courtesy smile. But in any case, the point here is that very often our community will have the two different extremes. We're going to have that group, which is going to identify everything as, as uh, every non-Muslim as a kafir and potentially even some Muslims as kafirs or sellouts, right? And then we will have those who will go for the ultra-gentle uh, route to the point that uh, they will they will water down everything. Neelifer, I do appreciate all this, you know, this dying laughter that you're giving me over and over again for every single sentence. I, I'm too old. I don't know how to get rid of the emojis. That's <laughs> oh, it's okay. It took me a long time to even understand what the emojis were. But okay. So, but the point is that there are times where we are prescribed. Uh, the default I'm suggesting is gentleness. The default is generosity. But there are times where we have to be absolutely brutally blunt now will you or i face that type of situation in our lifestyle in our lifetimes maybe maybe not i mean who knows people of america but but the point is unless you're uh in an actual conscious debate type situation you're probably not going to face this issue this issue or this moment nevertheless that leads us into a recollection of surah al-baqarah so you've already seen a sign in the two armies that met in battle. Okay. One was fighting for Allah's cause, the other was made up of kafirs. And with their own eyes, the former saw the latter as twice their number. Okay. So you all know, uh, you all know all the details of, 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 of the Battle of Badr. One point that's often left out, however, in what we teach is that, how, okay, first, how many Muslims were there in the Battle of Badr? If you look at the uh, IN number, it's right there. 313, yeah. Right the zip code. Okay, so so there's 313 against uh, how many, give or take, how many coffers? Easy questions. Yeah, so about a thousand. And then on top of that, how are we taught? We're taught very commonly that the Muslims are, are mostly ill-equipped whereas the, uh, the, the Quraysh, the Kafirs, are super well equipped. But when Muslims are there in battle, didn't we just pass the anniversary of this battle? Yeah, I think it's literally like this week. When the Muslims are, 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 were facing the Kafirs in battle, it is said that they did not see a thousand, they saw 2,000. So aside from how that happened, what did they see? This is what Allah made them see. What would be the purpose or the wisdom behind them being made to see not a thousand well-equipped people, but 2,000 well-equipped fighters? What do you think? 
And then not only that, these are their cousins. But there you are that morning lining up for battle. And if we if we uh, were to focus more on this, we would also look at Surat Al-Anfal, where it even talks about the du'as that, that they're making prior to it. But these time, trust in Allah, even though everything was hopeless. Yeah. Um, awesome. Uh, the, I was going to say the things Zishan typed. Yeah, so the point is that if you're there for any reason except for service to Allah, obligation to Allah, you're doomed. And and so then what we are taught is how what happens uh, that Allah sent reinforcement through rain the night before by making and thus making their ground a little bit more firm, but making the Quraysh's ground uh, less uh, less firm. And then he also sent angels upon them. And also that night he gave them good night's sleep, meaning the dua was answered in multiple different ways. Okay. But the point here, which is consistent with this theme of Iman in Allah, is that if your service is to anything but complete surrender to Allah, then you're doomed. If, however, your service is purely to Allah, then inshallah, you're saying to Allah, do with me as you will. So, now, uh, let's see. And Mustafa, let me get to your uh, question in a moment. Okay, so what is our most common uh, obstacle in seeking to get closer to Allah? Over the course of your life, for anyone, in everyone, what is the most common obstacle that is preventing a person from getting closer to Allah? Yeah, awesome. They're nafs? So they're nafs. And you'll find essentially two points that are effectively the same point. So either, oops. So here is, let's see, what's the easiest way to put it? Okay. Here is me. Here is Allah. Either the arrow inside me is facing Allah. That is what I'm aspiring to. Which means what? Just like that one ayah where we're quoting an intention that my whole life, my whole death, my whole purpose is for Allah. Right? That's the ideal that we're seeking to get to. Or, very often... It's pointing towards myself. So yesterday I made the point, uh, when you make your prayers, don't do this during the prayer, but do it after outside of the prayers. Try to reflect on how much, if you could have a percentage, what percentage of your prayers is focused on the law, what percentage of your prayer is not focused on the law. That which is not focused on the law is actually focused on yourself. That is not a failure. Meaning for a passing grade to fail, you basically need to focus on Allah that much. But the point is that the ideal goal is 100% immersion. And so the fundamental obstacle preventing me to get closer to Allah is going to be always myself. But another way we speak of... so. So the obstacle, we might call it by different names or focus on different aspects. We might say nafs in English, we might call it narcissism. 
that's just, uh, I think I have way too many. Anyway, you can see what I'm trying to say there. Or we might say love of dunya. Love of dunya is effectively in this context also a focus on the self. How would love of dunya be a focus on the self? Well, because you are consuming dunya, like things from the dunya. Yeah, you're consuming things uh, from the dunya for yourself. Yeah. So, so whether we're speaking of a focus on yourself or a focus on the dunya, they're effectively the same. This is the fundamental obstacle, which then means what? That some of the treatments are right there, that a way to make it easier for me to turn to a law is to break my attachment with dunya, which is what people always talk about. And it doesn't mean that you're leaving the dunya because you're never going to be able to leave the dunya, but you're leaving your attachment to the dunya. And so the idea of a zahid, which we might commonly translate as an ascetic, is not someone who has left society as much as they have left that which Allah is telling them to leave. So a Zahid is someone who does no haram and might still be 100% living in the middle of a, a heavily densely populated society. So why are we talking about that now? Because the next ayah gets into fun, some fun stuff. Ayah 14, Luyina Linnas, so beautified for the people is the love of these desirable things from women, children, gold, silver, all piled up, horses, with the finest markings, livestock, farmland. And then these are the joys of life and Allah is the best place to return to. Okay, so first, 600 pound gorilla. Okay, notice what's not on this ayah. Men is not on this ayah, in this ayah, just women. How do you interpret this? Is it that men are, I mean, aren't, is it that men are just so beautiful and desirable that it's not, it's an obvious thing we don't have to mention? Would it be audience again in this case or? Night is a good boy, mashallah. Okay, so yeah, so basically, once again, we are still speaking to a very particular audience, right? We're speaking to, to the Arabs that are being weaned out of their particular patriarchy in that time. Now, if this ayah were to come down in Chicago in 2021, should we put men in this list? Yeah, I think so. It's the most desirable the most beautiful of all creation. I mean, basically men in the moon, you know, that's, I mean, what else is there? Okay, anyway, so, so, so having said that, what is common among these things? Is it just that these are desirable things? What does, you know, what is it about women, children, gold and silver, horses, livestock, farmland, can you find a common theme among all of them? More status symbols? 
I suggest these are all uh, potentially more symbols of agency of power and thus, yeah, status as a result of that. And, and by its nature, temporary, right? And then the second part would be, yeah, that it's all, that it is all fundamentally temporary. But yeah, that often, so there are things that are attractive and beautiful in and of themselves. So notice this ayah does not say the, the sky, the moon, the mountains, okay, all these things we like to put in nice photos. Okay. Uh, the recurring theme here is possession and ownership, which then makes it consistent with this particular type of love of dunya. The extreme example is the pharaoh. That the pharaoh owned everything. So, a little bit more about the pharaoh. In terms of history, easy question, who was the pharaoh? Easy question. You don't have to give me the identity, Ramses, blah, blah, blah. Like in which story is the story of the pharaoh? Because in the Bible, we have a whole bunch of pharaohs. So, so yeah, he's the king of Egypt. He's the one that Musa, Islam, that Moses, peace be upon him, faced. Yeah. In terms of the mythology of the Quran, so first we're talking about the history. In terms of the mythology of the Quran, what is the role of the Pharaoh? Is that he is the embodiment of a tyrant. Meaning if you go through everything that the Pharaoh is listed to have done in the Quran, right? Slaughters all the boys, uh, keeps all the women, keeps the population divided to ele elevate himself, claims himself to be God, makes taller and taller buildings to, to, to glorify himself. That the Pharaoh is the symbol or the textbook of how a tyrant conducts himself. And so this goes back to the point when we were talking about allegorical and categorical ayahs. Just about every ayah that is categorical can also be read allegorical. There's a few that are too hard to read allegorically. But especially the historical ayahs. Majority opinion is to read them uh, categorically. Right? That the sea literally split into two mountains of water. How would you read the story of the sea splitting as an allegory? And I'm talking, of course, about Moses being chased by the Pharaoh, peace be upon him. Uh, yeah, awesome. Um, it's it's that idea of like it's it's like taqwa being rewarded, right? Like this is literally taking God as your shield, and then God, you know, did something that we. By, by all our understandings of science and physics and everything is not possible, but that for him, it's like, mm -hmm. it's like nothing. And so if you, if you, if you have taqwa, then God will take care of you. Mm -hmm. And this is literally in ayah, and I believe it's on either Surah Talaq or Surah Tahrim, I think it's in Surah Talaq, which is like Surah 65 or Surah 66, that if you have taqwa, if you're seeking the forgiveness of Allah, he will show you a way from where you were not expecting. So when we are looking at the stories of the previous prophets and we're looking at the stories of the previous nations, they're both categorical in the sense that they're both 
narrations of moments in history and what's being emphasized within those moments is a lesson, but they're also simultaneously allegorical. And so all the different nations that are, that are being destroyed and such. Yeah, awesome. Uh, that's how the like current version of the Bible functions, right? Is it, it's just a bunch of historical stories and we take allegory from them. So, so this, uh, in terms of the study of the Bible, whether we're talking through the lens of believers or whether we're talking through academics, uh, it seems much more that, that the people are looked at as real people in history, but the events are often looked at as metaphor. Yeah. Or there'll be some, some pivotal events that are looked at as real. Jesus is giving birth to, to or taking these birds and making them into, into uh, giving them life. And then he's giving, he's carrying the leper and he's giving sight to the blind man. And then he gets uh, fried and persecuted and crucified and then resurrected. So those would be literal that someone else might actually read allegorically, right? And so the point I'm making is that it's harder to, it's harder to say one way or the other, but uh, in my experience, my limited anecdotal experience, most of the Old Testament is looked at as having the seeds of history, but maybe allegory or may not even be any of those, right? When we get into Jesus, it's almost like the inverse that stories that many would read as allegory, like Jesus being God, are taken as literal. But, but uh, in terms of the historical critical study in academia, then all of it is looked at as fiction, pious fiction. Most of it is looked at as pious fiction, right? Because what proof, what proof do we have for the existence, for example, of Jesus himself? We don't have a grave. We have this reference, uh, is historical reference found in Josephus, this historian, you know, like two paragraphs. Um, and then what proof do we have that Moses and all the previous prophets existed? We don't have graves for them. We have a place that's identified as a grave. I had a rabbi who's a student of mine who said that, yeah, all those markings that if you go to, you know, if you go to Israel, Palestine, that all those markings that are considered to be, you know, the sites of, of, the of previous generations uh, that's all made up. He says that this one non came along and basically identified all those as such. He also didn't have too many nice things to say about Jerusalem. He, he so maybe he may not have been the best person to ask. But the point is that, um, yeah, so to answer your question, uh, it seems like we just have a whole wide variety, but not as much consistency. Um, I mean, it also seems to be very selective, especially when we look at the right wing in America. Is best. But the point yeah, we're making here is that uh, the greater point is that historical narratives are categorical, but then also allegorical. And then we have the Pharaoh, who is a figure in history, but at the same time, he is also, uh, what's the word? He is also the metaphor for a tyrant. And then we have the story of the Battle of Badr which we take as a very physical, literal event. But it is also an allegory that if you are facing in competition, if you're facing the opposition in competition, 
if you're relying upon anything but Allah, then you're vulnerable more than you realize. And if you're relying upon only Allah, then you're leaving your vulnerability up to him. Uh, Neil Fur is asking, do you use the term archetype ever? I do use the term archetype. Um, so we can use, say, Pharaoh as an archetypical tyrant, yeah. But I would use the term archetype much more in terms of categories of like types of faith and rejection of faith, especially at the beginning of Al-Baqarah. The archetype of Akbar, the archetype of Gopher, and so on. Yeah. Okay, uh, let us stop right here. We're going to talk more tomorrow, inshallah, about, about these, these points about these things that are made beautiful and such, and the lures of the world. And we're going to see that again, on the surface, this book, is, this section is about kafirs, but deeper than that, it's about the lures of dunya. All right, Ahant. So, you know, like if we're, and again, this is just a reflection, but if we're sort of tying this section into the first, section which you had mentioned um you know and correct me if i'm wrong uh the the uh, the power of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to do whatever he wants um you know you know like how do the two sections like connect yeah beautiful yeah. so so on the one hand we have the power of allah to do whatever he wants on the other hand we kept saying like the what is the repeated uh, element is of of what's being described in terms of rejection of faith or you know love of wealth and kids and all that is me trying to exert my own power me trying to illustrate my own power usually by possessions primarily by wealth and what wealth can give me all the things that are beautified and so then that becomes the fundamental clash it is Allah's will versus my will. And if I'm seeking to push back against Allah, then obviously I'm going to fail. But within my own head, I'm going to be very, very frustrated. The more I can surrender my will to Allah, the more in comfort I am going to be. And a way to think about this for all of us, because, you know, I mean, inshallah, none of us will ever have to worry or come close to being coffers or anything like that. A way to think about it is that we have, we might decide this is how the world should work. Yeah. Especially in, in terms of, you know, crime and punishment and justice and injustice, that this is how the world should operate. But then we're, we're, we're clashing that against how Allah Ta'ala is saying and showing how the world actually operates. And so that's not me exerting my will, but that is still me exerting my vision. And so the process of surrender at one level, at the legal level, surrender is basically saying my action should remain within the circle of, of, of halal. But when we're talking about spirituality, which is for some people the bigger challenge than, than, than halalifying everything, it's basically saying that I'm seeking to conform my vision of the world to what Allah Ta'ala is telling me to have as the vision of the world. So, yeah, so could this be sort of tied back to the, the heart diagram uh, that you drew where, you know, 
you know, like layers outside of the original, you know, like fitra, like of the heart could alter our, you know, you know perception where we form a, you know, s sort of an opinion on how reality sh uh, should be. I mean, yes, you know, that's exactly can this it. be tied back to the heart? That's well? uh, exactly uh, that's uh, uh, exactly the point. It's good, good observation, mashallah. The idea being that why would I want to have a particular vision of the world no. that goes against what Allah Ta'ala is telling me is the actual vision of the world. It's something in myself that's resisting. We might use such terms like stubbornness. Like when we go to Surah Al-Anfal, the eighth surah, it seems to be saying that the, the Bedouins versus the urbanites, so the people in the country versus the people in the city, uh, they have two different types of, of, of rejections, that the, the people of the city tend to be driven more by fear, whereas the people of the country tend to be driven more by stubbornness, meaning what is preventing people from growing? And so if I have a vision for how justice should happen, if I have a vision for how, how, uh, how bright the world should be, and I'm refusing to let it go, then my search is to find out why. What is it that I'm holding on to in, uh, deeper? Maybe it's something, uh, a statement about myself, an insecurity about myself. Maybe it's something else. But yeah, it would be the result of layers being put around my heart lenses. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And again, uh, moving away from, from the theories and the, the, the beautiful drawings that I make, the, uh, the basic point being that what seems to be is that the first part of the surah is speaking of Allah's freedom and dominance and lack of need for us, uh, yet he's giving us his generosity. And then the second is people who are choosing to carve their own way in violation or in resistance to that. And we'll add more to it, inshallah. So we're getting some fundamental ideas about life and, and how reality operates. I hope you're all feeling, to, you're, you're beginning to feel that that's what's forming now for us, inshallah. Okay, any other questions? So what is the key take home point from today is that, uh, that we have love of dunya, which is the same as love of self. And then the goal of the believer is literally to not abandon dunya as much as abandoning all the, the false promises of dunya and to attach ourselves to the real unbreakable promises of Allah. Alrighty, we will add more to this, inshallah, uh, tomorrow. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah tell reward you all, apologies on my, my tech problems, and uh, hope to see you tomorrow, inshallah. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.